Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We've always said on this program that being a, a leader is not just going as far as it's possible to go, but it's going as far as it's possible to go and leaving a trail. And someone who's done that throughout his life is Ray Scott. Uh, Ray Scott has a, a new book out. It's called The NBA in Black and White, the memoir of a trailblazing NBA player and coach. And uh, Coach Scott joins us on the line. Coach, thanks for joining us today. Boyd, it's great to be with you, and we're having this beautiful afternoon in Michigan, which we don't always get, <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, I hope you're having a, a beautiful time and a uh, beautiful day in, in Utah. Yeah, absolutely, and it's, uh, and it's getting better. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation because you have lived a life of, of principles that have made uh, a difference for so many and have been an example. Uh, you were a trailblazer in so many different ways throughout your career. But I want to just start with the, the context of your book, uh, The NBA in Black and White. Uh, and, and that really has a two-part meaning for you. Tell us about it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's parallel. As a 22-year-old, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't that didn't have that meaning when I was a 22-year-old. I was just a kid uh, going from uh, the auspices of the president at that time, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, uh, who had began looking at basketball uh, back in the 50s. And by that, I mean just observing basketball as a spectator and moving it ahead because I just I grew to be 6'8". And so when you grow to be six foot eight inches tall, you know what you get. So, <laughs> so I was like, oh, yes, I, I play basketball. And, uh, but through that period, there was growth, bilateral growth. There was growth in America, and there was growth in the NBA. So the NBA started in 1947. They integrated in 1950. As you know, as a country, we were segregated in 1950. And that was what, at 12 years old, mm. I went to visit Washington, D.C. And that's when I found out that our nation's capital at 12 years old was segregated. Mm. So segregation was an operative for me as I got older and recognized more things. I was like... What is this segregation? Because I'm a kid from South Philly, 
uh, lived in a third floor walk up. Our neighborhood was it was integrated. So I didn't know anything about all of these major issues. And then my mother started bringing me magazines like Life Magazine, Look yeah. Magazine, Jet Magazine, Ebony Magazine, and they would have these stories. And so at 16, the story of Emmett Till hit me, right. a young man that was murdered in Mississippi. And he was 14 years old. I was 16 years old. And I was an all-city basketball player. Right. And I just remember that having an impact upon me, this murder, as a young kid, that it started me looking at and reading about the Deep South mm-hmm. and the atrocities that occurred there. Even in this period, I'm not talking about slavery. I'm talking about the civilized period that we were supposed to be in post Second World War. Right. And so I'm looking at this, and along comes John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who says he wants to have the Negro population in America looking at us going forward and being a huge part of what America was all about. So I'm listening to these things as I'm voting for the first time, and I'm drafted into the NBA. And so talk about your perspective broadening. I'm going into the NBA. I'm now going to be a wage earner, one of the <laughs> top wage earners in the country, and uh, which was only like $12,000, by the way. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't want people to get excited. <laughs> I was a millionaire. <laughs> it was, I got, in fact, my contract was, my first contract was a two-year contract for $25,000. Oh, $1,000 of it was a bonus. But... <laughs> That was a lot of money. That was yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. So at any rate, as time progressed and I'm looking at the world, I'm looking at the tumultuous 60s and how we're growing, and I'm looking at the United States and how it's growing. Coming out of the, the Eisenhower years, you know, when he built the expressways and all of the things across America, we had that opportunity to embrace each other through safety and travel, and, which is not what I had in 1950 when yeah. we went to Washington, D.C. So th- being part of all of that, it was like I'm on one side over here with the NBA, and, you know, going to really good restaurants, going to shows now, movies, wearing nice clothes. And on the other side was the United States of America and its problems. Mm which I could, I was still seeing, and I was still living. So it was a, a unique piece. So when I sought to write the book, I wanted to write it from that perspective and not confuse, but really kind of inspire people to think about how we lived then and where we are now, yeah. what we could do to make things better with where we are. Yeah. And that's what I hope people come up with after they read the NBA in black and white, an inspiration to be better, make things better, become closer. And my dream is that we will all one day, when we sit down, we will identify ourselves as Americans. Yeah. Oh, that's so powerful. And it, uh, just listening to you to describe that, Coach, is uh, reminds me of someone who's be- become a good friend and an incredible road model, uh, Reverend Amos Brown, uh, who was okay. one of the last students uh, taught by Martin Luther King Jr. He's the pastor of the historic Third Baptist Church of San Francisco. And 
Uh, and much of your book reminds me of this feel of it's not about uh, becoming bitter looking back at the past. It's about becoming an no. agent of betterment. Uh, and right. you, you saw that both from a uh, an NBA standpoint and as a society standpoint. We still often fail to live up to the principles we profess to believe. Uh, but let's mm-hmm. talk for a minute about some of that progress uh, that you saw. I know in, in those early days of the league, there were quotas. Uh, you could only have so many African-American players on the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Red Arback really took that on. What was your experience kind of going through that process? My experience was great pride. Because as I came into the NBA, the NBA was espousing growth because they were bringing people to the table. Uh, early on, uh, when you talked about the, the players, you know, we said we only have two or three players on a team. And that was true. Uh, we had one city that was very southern, uh, which was St. Louis. That was true. We were not allowed to eat in restaurants. We were not allowed to go in bars. So all of those things took place. But what happened in the 60s was an erosion of those things. And that's what Malcolm X and Dr. King and Medgar Evers and Rosa Parks, that's what they represented in bringing us forward as young people in the 60s was change. How are we going to make that change? But what I saw, and I'm sure anyone that that looked at the era, uh, what they saw was change came about through people coming together in community. Yeah. And I remember that. I remember that standing there, shivering in my boots sometimes at a protest, praying that we're not going to be beaten up. But the guy standing next to me was an Italian. Mm. And the the guy on the other side was Jewish. And so they believed in our community, too. Yeah. They, this is pre-Vietnam War. Right, right. And so this is just kids standing up for civil rights, standing up for guys that lived in their neighborhoods, guys that lived in their cities, families that lived in their cities. You know, I, I always want to remember the people that stood in there. Yes, people were harmed. People were attacked. Uh, cruelty was, was there, was relevant. But... I want to point to the people that tried to make it better. Yeah. Uh, and we came together and that there was a strength in that. And there was a yeah. there was a strength in the 60s with us being united as a country as young people. And I and I was part of it. I mean, I didn't I was, you know, 22, 23, 24, 25 years old. I probably didn't even half the time know what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, I just knew it wasn't right. We're going to stay with the conversation. I'm going to continue my conversation with a historic figure, Coach Ray Scott, talking about community and culture leading. Politics follows. Stay with us here on Inside Sources. We'll be right back. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. We always talk about it's community and culture that lead and the politicians follow eventually. Uh, sometimes they're they're really slow and, and your experience is, is so powerful in that coming together of community, the power in that. Uh, you, you trailblazed in, in so many different ways, uh, but one that probably a lot of people aren't familiar with uh, was the fact that not only did you make that rare transition of being a great uh, NBA player uh, to becoming a successful coach, uh, you actually became the first black coach to win Coach of the Year. Uh, and I think many people forget 
you know, when that period was and how that came about. Yeah, 1974, 73, 74, it came about because of my players. I mean, if you if you don't have the guys that believe in your philosophy, and the guys that led for me were Dave Bing and Bob Lanier, two Hall of Famers. Yeah. Uh, but if they don't believe in the philosophy that I, as a 34-year-old coach, is bringing forth, and, you know, re- remember, I'm, I was in their age group. I'm 34, they're... 27, you know, 24. So we're within 10 years of each other. But if they don't believe in what it is that I was trying to espouse, then it doesn't happen. Mm. It doesn't happen. You know, there's no magic to that. (laughs) So with them believing it, we were able to get a first set of accomplishments, but we didn't get out of it what we should have gotten out of it because the, the greed factor enters into it. You know, there's a there's a thing that exists, uh, uh, Boyd, in 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 America that says you want to get paid, and that that impacted our team. Mm. And so, where we should have gone on to become, in my opinion, a championship quality team, we got lost in those dregs of guys wanting to get paid. Because I'm of the Bill Russell philosophy. And I listened to Bill a lot. Yeah. And Bill's philosophy was, if we win, we all get paid. Right. Uh. And that's that's one of the things I loved about him. And I I still think of that even in business. Yeah. If we go out and, and do our business well, we will all be rewarded. Yeah. It's not about one person being rewarded. No, and, and it's building that culture again. Goes back to to that in a in a locker room. Uh, uh, we say that uh, the culture eats strategy and talent for breakfast, uh, and and that's a, a real crucial part of, of coaching, especially in an era like that, I think, where things were starting to change and evolve. Uh, yeah. Tell us what it was in terms of your philosophy uh, that enabled you to, to, to bring some of that community together, to have some of that success, maybe not the ultimate success you wanted, uh, but mm-hmm. some of those things that got the ball rolling. Well, what got the ball rolling for me is that late in my career – I got to play with really great championship people like Earl Monroe mm. and Wes Unseld and Gus Johnson and Jack Marin and Kevin Lockery and Charlie Scott and Julius Irving. You know, guys that just had that, we matched that fire. They wanted to win. And so there's certain things that you must do in order to win. There are certain sacrifices that you make in order to win, but you do it for the betterment of your organization. And when guys buy into that, it's, it's so beautiful. With the Boston Celtics being so dominant in the NBA, that was not an accident. That was a culture. Yeah. That was, that was Red Auerbach stepping in and saying, this is what I want and this is how we're going to do it. And the guys, and having leaders in his locker room that said, yes, Red, you're right. And those leaders were Bill Russell and Bob Cousy and Bill Sharman and Tommy Heinsohn and just guys I'm not even naming that bought into that culture of saying, you know, it's the Musketeers, one for all and all for one. (laughs) That's Uh, not a mistake that they said that in France. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) French. The French 
don't get a lot of credit, but that's a pretty good thing. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Earl the Pearl Monroe. He actually wrote the foreword for your book. Again, the book is yes. The NBA in Black and White. And one of the things that I loved, I think he nailed perfect uh, because it's so counter to so much of what we see in media today. And Earl the Pearl said of you and your writing in this book that uh, you you weren't communicating to shock. You were getting people to think uh, and yes. think again. Uh, why is that so important? Earl and I used to sit around and talk about things like that as players. And the one thing we had in the 60s as players, you know, we had incredible music with Motown and the jazz and the clothing. Uh, we had James Brown say it loud and black and I'm proud, and we talked about pride, and we we talked about how we would build the elements of our community, because that's what you have to do, and in my opinion. So Earl was somebody that shared in those conversations over the years. I think he pointed that out in his forward, which it, it, I thought his forward for me, just I thought it gave great encouragement to read the book. You know, and and so he was a guy that really, as a young man, because he was a young player, he had that character and that quality. And that. so, you know, but Earl, uh, Wes Unseld, uh, they were they were very 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 tough people, and I I enjoyed their presence. One of the toughest of all was was Dr. J. Julius Irving. Again, I I enjoyed being in his presence because uh, we would have theoretical conversations mm-hmm. and how we can move the needle and what can we do. Uh, that more of that went on in the NBA than you may think. Yeah, love that. Final question for you, Coach. I'd stay with you all day today. Uh, oh, <laughs> I'm going to give you a, a final question, and that is uh, looking through all of this. What's the therefore what? What do you hope people take away uh, from this extraordinary book? And I will just note, this is a book, whether you are a basketball fan or aficionado or a novice, uh, there is so much to think about in this book. Uh, For you, Coach, what is it that you hope people think differently or do differently as a result of reading this? I, I, I I think it's in my final chapter where I want people to open their hands and grasp not only the hands of each other, but the thoughts of each other, mm. the, 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 the parallel between the NBA and the United States is not mistaken. That is intentional. I want people to do and watch and look at how the NBA has grown and how they have impacted communities, how they have raised people to, to wealthy stages. And that happened because of blood, sweat, and tears in the NBA. And I believe we can do that in America by bringing everyone to the table, opening your hands and your ears and your hearts and listening to each other. Ah, fantastic. And the book is The NBA in Black and White, the memoir of a trailblazing NBA player and coach, first black coach to win coach of the year. Ray Scott, uh, not only a great player, a great thinker, and someone who showed us what leadership looks like and what leadership sounds like and what leadership acts like, and that even as a country, when we fail to live up to the principles we profess to believe, 
uh, if we'll do as uh, Coach Scott has reminded us today, come together in community, hands open, hearts open, minds open. The best really is yet to come. Coach Scott, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you, my friend. Great insight from a historic individual. Worth checking that out. Go back to the podcast later on this afternoon. We're going to step aside for bottom of the hour news. I'm Boyd Matheson. You're listening to Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. We'll be right back. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.